So we've made it here finally. The last evening of, you know, this really strange experiment that we call being on retreat. Um, Might have seemed like it would never get here, but here it is. And it's such a different way of being than what we're usually used to. You know, if this is the first time that you've tried this, uh, you understand now, you know, just what a different way of being in the world it is. I remember um, a couple of years ago when my daughter was getting old enough to to start to actually get a sense of what you all were up to here, what the yogis were actually up to, um, how they were behaving while they were here, you know, how we come in very quietly and, you know, do our best (laughs) not to disturb you guys. And, um, you know, she was asking about this, you know, well, do they, do they talk at all? And so I explained to her (laughs) a little bit about noble silence and told her, yeah, they talk a little bit, you know, they come and talk to the teachers a little bit and they might need to talk to some of the staff about their jobs a little bit sometimes, but for the most part, they just stay quiet, they don't talk. And she kind of, you know, ruminated on this for a few minutes, I could see the little wheels spinning. (laughs) And she leans and she says, can they whisper? It's just such a different way of, of being here. <laughs> it's hard to take it in. You know, why would we do this? <laughs> is it for real? <laughs> but it is for real. Then we go through this exercise in the hopes that, uh, that we'll learn something. And I know that um, all of you here have learned things while you've been here. To be doing this, the, the particular way that we're doing it, to be doing this here as a community of lay people and lay teachers that have all come together for a period of intensive insight meditation, wisdom meditation, is really pretty rare in the long history of Buddhism. For most of the last, you know, say, 1,500 to maybe 2,000 years of uh, Buddhist history, and a serious insight meditation, insight meditation that was uh, really uh, had this goal of seeing impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and impersonality and experiencing deep transformation through that understanding was almost exclusively the realm of monastics and specifically uh, the guys, <laughs> the monks. And this was largely because it was considered necessary to do a whole lot of preparation you know, to to prepare the mind, to be ready to receive insight, to be able to open to it. So there were some really serious prerequisites for doing a course like this, for doing this type of practice that uh, generally involved many years of Pali study, you know, learning the language of the ancient teachings and then memorizing many of those ancient texts um, would involve many years of preparatory practices, devotional practices, lots of time uh, building concentration in very formal, structured ways. And all of this just simply wasn't possible for somebody who needed to, say, earn a living (laughs) or take care of a family or even just take care of themselves. So if you wanted to practice Buddhist meditation with any real aspiration, you had to leave worldly life and become a monk and find one of the relatively few monasteries where meditation was actually taught and practiced in earnest. Um, you know, most uh, Buddhist monks these days don't necessarily spend a lot of time in meditation. It's about study and teaching and transmitting the teachings, guarding these teachings so they can be passed on to future generations. 
And if you were a woman and you really had an interest in meditation and an aspiration to awaken, then for the most part all you could do is just try to behave yourself, (laughs) do some good deeds, earn some merit, accumulate some good karma, so that you could be reborn as a man and uh, <laughs> ordain and practicing your next lifetime or somewhere down the, down, the, down the trail. And this is pretty much how it was until the 20th century, at which point the cultures of the Buddhist world underwent this, this huge upheaval, which we call World War II. And there was just tremendous you know, not only physical damage, human suffering, just tremendous devastation across Asia and the areas that were involved, much of the Buddhist world. And in Burma especially, you know, the the fighting and the destruction was particularly savage, really uh, uh, just awful. And the country, you know, arguably is still recovering from that, has never really bounced back. But when the war ended, there was this real surge of interest in meditation across the Buddhist world. I think about the atmosphere that was here um, a dozen years ago or so now after 9-11. You know, most of us are old enough we can remember that. You know, depending on our generation, we kind of have our, our different touchstones of you know, our generational disaster. But remembering that period after 9-11 and that great just hunger to, to make some sense of it, to find some meaning, to find some comfort and some solace within it all. So I think about what it must have been like, at, you know, this, this period of war in Asia where it's just like one 9-11 after another, after another, after another. Incredible devastation. And the thirst for understanding, the thirst for peace, the thirst for the, you know, traditions, the, the Buddhist traditions that were indigenous to the cultures to actually deliver on their promises, to deliver some of this peace and understanding and equanimity that was so desperately needed and a number of exceptional teachers emerged out of that period to meet that demand. One of these was uh, the Venerable Mahasi Saida, who we speak a lot here, one of the great Burmese meditation masters of the 20th century. And the approach to meditation that he laid out uh, didn't require any special preparation. It was a very different way of approaching it. It didn't require a monastic education. It didn't require learning Pali. It didn't require even basic literacy, which was scarce. It didn't require years of concentration practices to prepare the mind or complete renunciation of lay life. All it really required was just a clear understanding of mindfulness and how to be aware. And this was absolutely revolutionary. Among those that Mahasi Sayadaw trained was an Indian civil servant, a layman living in Rangoon named Manindra. Mahasi Sayadaw encouraged Manindra to return to India, his native country, and teach. And he ended up at the Burmese Vihara in Bodhgaya, India, the site of the Buddha's enlightenment, which was visited one day by a young Peace Corps volunteer named Joseph Goldstein. And here we are, and the chain continues. In the Buddha's time, there was actually a strong tradition of lay practice at the beginning there in his initial community of followers. So if we look at the Pali Canon, we see many, many lay people there, and not just in a supporting role, kind of of sustaining the Sangha, you know, offering food and shelter and medicine and things to to the monks, but really uh, practicing in a sincere way, taking the teachings in. 
Initially, the Buddha's following after his enlightenment consisted of this relatively small group of men, you know, initially just those five ascetics who had been his companions in the holy life before his enlightenment, which he could see were kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, so he went back to find them, and they all got enlightened in pretty quick order. And you know, this didn't go unnoticed by the lay communities around where they were living, around where they were wandering that this amazing group of beings had appeared in their present that was different, different from any other people, any other group of people that they had come across before. So they went to the Buddha and his companions, and they brought them food and clothing and medicine and other requisites, as was the tradition then, as now, and which is really essential to, to sustaining the Sangha. But they also questioned the Buddha and his companions. You know, who are you? What do you believe? What do you practice? What's it all about with you? And the Buddha on his side didn't just take their offerings and say, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> you know, he would sit and talk to them. He would offer his teachings. He would share what he would discovered. He would guide them towards seeing it for, him, for themselves. And there were many, many lay people who really got it, really got it on a deep level. And our understanding here is that uh, this is a possibility for all of us that it's not just a myth, it's not just something that kind of happened once upon a time long, long ago, but that this is really a possibility for all of us, deep transformation, real awakening. In the canon we find these lists of um, what the Buddha, uh, people that the Buddha singled out as kind of the foremost monks, you know, that had the the greatest qualities of certain different types of uh, virtues and also the foremost nuns, and also lists of the foremost uh, lay people, men and women. The lay woman who was foremost in the quality of metta, of loving kindness, uh, was named Samavati. And her story is kind of like a, it's a little bit like a Buddhist Cinderella story. (laughs) So she was somebody who was endowed just with a very natural, uh, warm, loving quality of heart, and uh, who had a difficult uh, early life, but those experiences didn't shut her down. They actually opened her up so that she was you know, deeply compassionate, really warm and loving, um, and also probably uh, uh, not too hard on the eyes, <laughs> according to the story. <laughs> so, um, you know, as the story goes, uh, you know, these wonderful qualities of hers brought her eventually to the attention of the king, um, King Udena. <clears throat> of uh, Kosambi, so he was the, the king of one of the, the larger kingdoms of kind of the Ganges Valley at the time. And uh, he became enamored of her, you know, this, this lovely radiant being, and he took her as his wife. It's a little bit of a Cinderella story. Um, but King Udena was not exactly Prince Charming. This is how you can tell it's a Buddhist Cinderella story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he had uh, some anger management issues. <laughs> He was a little bit quick in the draw, you know. He would often, uh, you know, start speaking before the mind was engaged, and tended to kind of blow up about things uh, unreasonably. So Samavati, you know, it wasn't all happily ever after. After she came to the king's palace, uh, especially since he already had two other wives, which can make for a lot of intrigue. Um, but this this quality of heart, the openness of metta that she had, uh, was really a refuge for her in that situation. You know, she really needed that to to navigate all the palace intrigue and to stay on good terms with her husband and uh, to just make a life for herself there. One of Samavati's servants, a woman named uh, Kujutara, 
uh, was an even more came from an even more humble background, very poor, uh, very unremarkable woman, you know, uneducated, uh, maybe not particularly uh, remarkable in terms of her appearance, uh, just a very simple uh, woman, peasant woman. And she was kind of Samavati's uh, gopher. So Samavati would send her on little tasks here and there around to fetch things for her because the palace ladies, you know, the great ladies were in the harem. They were uh, secluded. They weren't allowed to go, you know, just roaming about the marketplace. And it became um, Kajutara's task, uh, once Samavati learned of the Buddha, to go out to the marketplace where the Buddha and his uh, disciples were teaching the Dharma and to listen to the teachings and to remember them and to bring them back and share them with her because she was hungry for the Dharma. And in this process, uh, Kajutra became not only enlightened herself, <laughs> but uh, profoundly learned, you know, from this very humble state through listening and really deeply taking in the teachings, became uh, the lay follower who the Buddha singled out as the most learned female lay disciple. And there's a, a collection of uh, really lovely teachings in the Buddhist canon called the uh, Itivitaka, which is one of these, these small books that's very popular. And a lot of the kind of the most famous teachings that you hear a lot in Dharma talks and things come out of there. And the, the prose of it is it's, it's, it's really an elegant piece of work, you know, not just profound, but really uh, beautiful prose. And this is attributed to Kajutara, this former uh, servant woman of the queen. The most learned layman was a man named uh, Chitta, who was a merchant in kind of a prosperous, uh, bustling, uh, you know, bourgeois town. And he was not only very successful in his work that he did, in his buying and selling and trading, um, he was a great supporter of the Sangha, too, um, but also profoundly learned through listening and practicing. And he also became a lay teacher in his town, you know, sharing the Buddha's teachings with the men of, of his area. There's a famous conversation that he had with the leader of the Jain community, which was contemporary with the Buddhist, the budding Buddhist community, and of him kind of uh, engaging the, the leader of the Jains in this brilliant debate and, you know, really getting the better of him in this very uh, tricky way. <laughs> but it was said that both Kajutara and Chitta helped hundreds of other lay people to realize the Dharma and to uh, reach stages of enlightenment. So already there in the canon, there's this tradition of lay practice, lay teaching, lay communities, just like this, coming together and sharing the Dharma and really getting it this way, you know, without the Buddha necessarily being directly involved. So there were very respected yogis and teachers among the lay community in the time of the Buddha. And now, again today, you know, some of our most accomplished uh, yogis in this tradition have been lay people, like Manindra, like uh, Deepama, that uh, we've spoken about some. Um, these were people that realized the Dharma very deeply. Um, you know, Deepama herself coming from a relatively humble background, you know, not a lot of education, not a lot of learning. But she really got it through her practice. And today there are many different paths available to us as modern Westerners. You know, some of us do feel called, you know, to put on the robes for a shorter or longer period of time. Uh, some of us have no interest in that whatsoever. You know, we're devoted to our lives in the world, to our families and our work and our communities. Some of us kind of end up somewhere in between, you know, living in the world uh, with jobs and friends, communities, but maybe keeping our lifestyle just very simple, maybe uh, abstaining from marriage and children, just living a very simple life in the world. 
So there's no one right model for how to do this, you know, kind of today in this movement that we're, we're engaged with here. And that's both, you know, a gift on the one hand, that we have the freedom to really chart our own, our own course, but it can also be at times a challenge, you know, what should we be doing? How should it look? What's the right way? One of the tools that we have available for helping us to figure out how to do that, how to chart our course, is to come on a retreat like this. But it's important to realize at the same time that this retreat is just a small part of that larger path that we're all walking, that path of our lives, which includes our whole lives, you know, everything, all of it. But we can fall into seeing retreat as kind of the pinnacle of spiritual practice, especially if we've had some really compelling, you know, really uh, dramatic, maybe really different kinds of experiences while we've been here. We might fall into this, this view, you know, in a more or less subtle way that, you know, this is really what it's about, is the work that's being done here. And that everything that goes on outside is kind of like maybe just treading water, you know, <laughs> until we can get to the next retreat, kind of second-rate practice. But this is not the view that the Buddha presented at all, uh, not the view that we find in the teachings as they've come down to us, not ultimately what we find in our own lives if we keep at this for long enough. The Buddha taught that it's entirely possible to do this practice outside of a formal retreat setting, and not only possible, but really important, really essential. But it's also not necessary to get into a mode of comparing these two types of practice, retreat practice versus daily life practice. You know, there are certain things that we learn and cultivate here in this very specialized laboratory, in this very interesting way that we have of doing things. And there are certain things that we learn and we cultivate in the course of our daily lives, just out in the midst of our everyday activities. So again, this is another place of finding the middle path, finding that right balance for us between retreat practice to the extent that we're inspired, to the extent that we're able to be here for this kind of retreat, and our daily life practice out in the world. Most of us aren't able to take, you know, say three months out of our year every year to, to spend an intensive retreat as the Buddha recommended as, and as we've been doing here for decades now. Every fall, people coming for three months to really take that time to settle and look, and look deeply. Some of us might be able to do that. For some of us, that might be a possibility. So if we feel called to do that, that's a great blessing, even if we can manage it just once. But maybe we just come back here for another one of these retreats, you know, another nine days before too long, you know, before we've kind of lost the momentum of what we've learned while we've been here. Maybe some of us hold that aspiration to go to, to Asia and to immerse ourselves in kind of the roots of the tradition. So that's another possibility, another aspiration we can hold. So we don't need to create an artificial divide between the sacred and the profane. You know, if we're sincere in this path that we're walking, if we're sincere in our spiritual practice, then we'll find ways. Ways will present themselves that kind of has a way of happening. We'll be able to find our, our path. But we also probably recognize that our understanding is not yet perfect and that our lives are complicated and fast-paced and demanding. So it's natural to have fears about not getting it right, about messing up. We may worry that we can't do it right, 
There, there are certain impediments just in our lifestyle, in our situation in the world, that will get in our way, that we won't be able to overcome, that maybe the time is just not right for us to be doing this. The Buddha taught that there are appropriate concerns and inappropriate concerns when it comes to our spiritual life. And he gave us some guidelines about what is and isn't reasonable for us to worry about. So it's very common for us to fall into uh, thoughts, uh, for example, you know, I'm in love, (laughs) or I'm still interested in love, romantic relationships, sexual relationships. And that involved so much desire, you know, there's so much craving just inherent in that. I can feel it. I can feel it while I've been here. (laughs) So how can I walk this path? How can I do this practice if I've got that going on in my life? Or maybe I'm caring for my family or family members. Maybe I'm in a caregiving position and I'm devoted to them. And that also involves so much attachment, so much craving, so much aversion, so much time, so much energy. You know, how can I do this practice in the midst of all that? Or maybe we have a career or a cause that we're passionate about in the world, that we're committed to. And again, that maybe involves a lot of attachment, a lot of aversion, a lot of time and energy invested. So how can we do this practice? Or maybe just, you know, we really like to be comfortable. (laughs) We like to enjoy our lives. We like to have a beautiful home or beautiful things. Maybe we like to travel or create music or art or just to be with our friends or just to make enough money so that we can have the things that we want to enjoy in this world. And that, you know, kind of X, fill in the blank, takes, you know, involves so much craving, so much aversion. You know, how can we do this practice given that condition in life? But the Buddha taught that all of these kinds of things are really misplaced fears, that they're un- unhelpful concerns. It was really helpful to me when I first encountered this teaching. It was a time um, kind of early in my relationship with my husband. Um, when I was leaving him a lot <laughs> to go off and go into retreat. And, you know, I, was, I had this real sense of urgency. I did feel at times like my hair was on fire, you know, so I was doing what I felt I needed to do at that time. But, you know, clearly there's still a lot of confusion, a lot of conflict around it, a lot of guilt, a lot of uh, doubt. And someone um, in Burma gave me one of these little books that they print there. Uh, as an act of generosity for free distribution. You know, just a tiny, tiny little book uh, that you can keep by your cushion for those times when you're kind of falling asleep or running out of inspiration. You can pick it up and just kind of, you know, peruse it a little bit. That's, that's one of the ways that they practice there. And I came across this um, teaching in it that gives this whole list of things that we don't need to be concerned about. And I really love um, the English translation of this book. It's really cute, um, clearly translated by somebody that had not the greatest grasp of the English language. But, but you, can, you can kind of get the gist of it. So, you know, one of the things right at the top of the, the, that list of things that we don't need to worry about uh, is what it called uh, boy meets girl. <laughs> this lovely Victorian era kind of phrase for <laughs> what we can all imagine, you know. <laughs> Which, you know, it could be boy meets boy or girl meets girl, as the case may be. So falling in love, you know, being in love, being in relationship, wanting that in our lives was on this list of things that we don't need to worry about. And there's this lovely story that was included along with that teaching about um, Nakula Pita and Nakula Mata, 
who were two of the, the Buddha's uh, disciples, two of his students, his lay students, during uh, his lifetime. And the Buddha repeatedly singled out this couple as kind of an example of, of um, domestic harmony and really what a, a life partnership uh, should be about in the best sense. Uh, Nakula Pita, in particular, the, the husband and the, the couple, he, he uh, singled out as the uh, best confidant, the best confidant among all his lay followers. And uh, Nukula Mata, the, the wife, was singled out as being foremost in undivided pleasantness. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice to have in our partner? <laughs> and during the time of the Buddha, this couple was able to hear his teachings and to do some practice together, and they had gained some true insight. You know, they were among those that had really gotten it at some level and had become devoted supporters and followers of the Buddha. And it was also said that this couple had been in a close relationship with the Buddha in many, many lifetimes previously. So they had been uh, his mother and father in many lifetimes or other close relatives. Um, so that they felt very at ease and very affectionate with him, almost as if he was their own son. They treated him in kind of a, a familiar way that uh, most other people did not. And they were able to speak with him very frankly and kind of informally. So there was one time um, as they were sitting and discussing the Dhamma with the Buddha, that Nikulapita, the husband, uh, made this kind of declaration to the Buddha. He said, Venerable Sir, I took Nikulamata as my wife when I was young, and since then I have never even had a thought of infidelity, let alone an actual lapse. I've always wanted to be just with her in this lifetime, and I always, and I always want to continue to be with her until our journey through samsara is complete. And hearing these words, Nikulamata kind of echoed the same sentiment. She said, Venerable Sir, I came with him to his house in my youth, and since then I've never had a thought of anyone else. I've always wanted to be with him, and always want to be with him, throughout the whole of samsara. And the Buddha responded to this very sincere expression of this deep affection, you know, among this old couple, uh, with a brief teaching on how to ensure that they would remain together through samsara in such a supportive relationship as they had. He said, if two partners who are leading a harmonious life together wish to remain together in the future, then they should take care to be well-matched in the qualities of faith, morality, generosity, and wisdom. Just as one is inspired and enthusiastic in their faith, so should the other be. Just as one is careful and compassionate in upholding moral conduct, just so should the other be. If one of them wishes to support a worthy cause, the other should encourage them. If the other wishes to offer aid to others, the first should be delighted. And so too, they should strive to understand each other equally through wisdom and knowledge. And this is one of those stories that I find um, just so fascinating. You know, it goes so against the usual picture that we get of the Buddha really, you know, poo-pooing kind of on lay life, you know, saying, saying that it's dusty and crowded. <laughs> And you know, we should get away from it as quickly as possible. You know, that's not at all the image that comes through here. You know, so the Buddha doesn't come back at this old couple with, well, you know, you guys should really try to get over your attachment to each other so that you can get enlightened as fast as possible. You know, that's not his response here. Instead, you know, I think he's really uh, validating here the value of an equal and committed and supportive partnership in life that is based on you know, shared wholesome aspirations, shared values. 
that we don't all need to be monastics if that's not where we feel our path lies. And there's a lot of other great things from this uh, list of things not to worry about from my little Burmese book. So it also includes things like working for a living and earning money. (laughs) Don't need to worry about that. If it's a little bit of money, we don't need to worry about that. If it's a lot of money, we don't need to worry about that. So being engaged in trade and commerce and just kind of the economic life of you know, human society. It also includes being involved with um, what are called courts and litigation, which I take to mean kind of you know, all the various political aspects of society, you know, being engaged in the communal life and, how, and the operation of it, the operation of society. It also includes things like eating and sleeping. We don't have to worry about those. Making love. Just all the basic, you know, natural human needs that we all share. None of these things are things that we need to stress about in our lives, according to the Buddha. You know, we don't have to worry that our lives are somehow not spiritual enough, you know, if we are engaged in all of these things. So any kinds of worrying or fearful thoughts that we have coming up around these types of things are really just a form of craving and aversion, and we can see them that way. The Buddha actually encourages us to take a wholesome delight in being able to live in the world in a skillful way, as Kamala was talking about this afternoon with her talk on uh, dana, you know, when we are able to engage in generosity and do good in the world that way, to support uh, good causes, to be uh, a support for good things in the world, then it's entirely appropriate, you know, not out of pride, but out of wisdom to take delight in that, to, to actively delight in that to find a source of wholesome happiness in that. There's a great teaching. I don't think I have time to read it, but it's called the Mangala Sutta. And it's, it's very brief. It's just one page. It's the Great Discourse on Blessings. And um, it's a story of uh, a deva, a celestial being, who appears to the Buddha one night and asks him basically, what are the real sources of happiness in life? What are the true blessings in life? And again, it's one of these things that gives a whole laundry list, starting from you know very mundane things like um, having a good education, you know, having uh, skills and or a trade that we can use, uh, being able to earn a living in the world in a, in a relatively harmless way, uh, being able to care for our families. So that's kind of on one end of the spectrum, and then all the way to the other end of the spectrum of being able to do this practice, the the way that we are here, being able to really deeply see the true nature of things, being able to realize insight and gain greater freedom in life. So this whole spectrum of things that um, are available to us in this world, that that are true and genuine, wholesome sources of happiness, and that when we recognize them in our lives, when we recognize that these blessings are present, it's entirely appropriate to delight in them, to take joy in them, that these are, in fact, the, the correct the appropriate, the wholesome sources of joy in our lives. So on the one hand, the Buddha said that we don't need to worry about just living an ordinary human life. This is not going to be an obstacle to us on our spiritual path. And that there are many real wholesome sources of joy available to us in this world that, again, we don't have to worry about. On the other hand, the Buddha also said that there are things, there are aspects of our life uh, that we should be concerned about, that it's very appropriate to be concerned about, even to the point of being fearful of them. 
So what we should really be concerned about in our lives are greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> this is really what it's about. Not just about them arising and being there. You know, they'll do that when conditions are ripe, as we've all seen. But what we should be quite concerned about is that they arise without us seeing them, and that they run around unchecked, unfettered in the mind, and that we act them out unknowingly. And the defilements are tremendous drivers in our lives, these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, what we call the defilements. We really get to see that here. And we all know that it's the same out there. (laughs) We bring with us what we've got, and we take it back with us when we leave. But it can be easy to miss, or just to not see it, these forces that are driving us, or to misinterpret them if we do see them. And this is why it's so important to bring the practices right into the middle of our lives, our everyday lives. With greater awareness, we can see those forces at work. We can see them for what they are. And we can do our best not to impose them on those around us, to practice restraint. And again, you know, it's not that we need to keep those unwholesome forces of mind from arising. It's not that we need to uh, tighten the lid down, you know, batten down the hatches so that no greed, hatred, or delusion can, you know, seep out, you know, good luck with that. (laughs) It's just that we need to see, that we need to recognize exactly as we've been practicing here, just to see what's happening, what's the truth of it. Whatever skillful action that we're going to be capable of out there in our lives, whatever restraint we're going to be capable of, has to start from that place of just simply knowing what is here with us, what is happening, what's actually going on in our hearts and minds. And that's what opens up the window of opportunity for us to then be creative, find a different way, shift the equation a little bit, do something different. When we're able to see the forces driving us, then it can become the fuel for wisdom rather than an impediment for it, an integral part of our path. The Buddha said that for a person forced on by their thinking, fierce in their passion, focused on pleasure, craving grows all the more. They are the ones who tighten the bond. But one who delights in the stilling of thinking, always mindful, Cultivating awareness of what is unskillful, they are the ones who will make an end, the ones who will cut Mara's bond. And this is the great challenge and the great potential of our practice in daily life. You know, take such courage, such commitment, as Kamala spoke about, to be willing to really face the truth of what's going on. It's so much easier just not to look that closely. Since becoming a mother, you know, this has really become a huge part of my daily practice, the practice of being brutally honest with myself, (laughs) which is not always a pretty practice, you know, as we learn here. You know, there's uh, so much love and desire and ambition and everything else tied up in our children. You know, those of us that are parents know this. It's powerful stuff. And there's part of me still, you know, at this point that would rather not look, would rather not see it, that doesn't want to know. Yet I know that the best thing that I can do for my children, you know, the best thing that any of us can do for those of us that we're involved in relationship within our lives is to look, is to look honestly, to make the best effort that I can to be in touch with my heart so that I know uh, how I'm relating to them, 
so that I'm not just blindly acting out all of those passions that are there and that will be there for quite a while to come. I think there are a few um, better teachers when it comes to greed, hatred, and delusion than a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My son uh, now has just turned two a couple months ago, and uh, some of you may have noticed him around here. You know, he's a really cute little guy. He's really adorable. <laughs> he's got this really impish little smile. You know, that's just uh, irresistible, and these bright blue eyes. And, you know, for me, he's just so appealing, you know, at every sense door, in every sense. Uh, you know, his soft little body and his silky hair and, you know, those little hands and feet that they have, you know, and just his, that expressive little face of his and his disarming smile and this just, you know, wonderful period of his development that he's going through where everything is new and there's such delight and joy in the world around him. And at times, you know, it just takes my breath away. The pleasure is so intense of being with him. And I'm completely consumed with craving, you know, and it feels insatiable. You know, it's very much like a love affair, you know, what we have with our children. And, you know, there's just no way to fill that longing. There's no, there's no end to it. It is insatiable. You know, even, even now he'll never let me, you know, he'll, not, he'll never hold still for me to hug and kiss him as much as I'd like to. Uh, you know, and will there ever be? You know, enough hugs, enough kisses to satisfy that desire. You know, I'm going to turn around one day and he's going to be a teenager and that'll be the end of that, you know. (laughs) So there's that whole side of our relationship. But then there are also, you know, those other times (laughs) when he's crying, he's fussing, he's hitting, he's squirming. um, You know, and I may have no idea what his problem is still. You know, he's learning to talk now, but when he's in that state, you know, he's not usually so coherent. And, you know, maybe we're in public. (laughs) Maybe we're in the staff room. (laughs) Maybe I'm exhausted. You know, maybe I have other things to do that need to get done. You know, and I just want to make it all stop. I just want to pull the plug, flip the switch, you know, (laughs) and get on with it. The inversion is so intense, you know. so, So there's that whole other side to our relationship. And in both of those situations, you know, in his little world, I am so powerful, you know. Um... I could really crush him, you know, I could literally crush him with the force of my passions. But if I can see that anger going on, if I can see that craving, that adoration going on, then, you know, maybe I can take a deep breath, (laughs) you know, I can try to consider a little bit what are really his needs, what's his point of view, and see if I can find it in myself to, to find a way to give him a little bit of what he needs. Um, or if not, then at least to cause as little harm as possible, which is really the, the deepest aspiration that I hold around him. So our model for the practice, our guidelines, you know, wherever we are, whether it's here in retreat or whether it's out there in the world, uh, is always the eightfold path, which is the fourth noble truth, the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. And I find that walking this path in daily life is very much a juggling act, you know, kind of juggling these different elements of the path that lead to awakening. In shorthand form, we talk about the, the three trainings, which is kind of a, a grouping of the, those elements of the Eightfold Path and just into three main, you know, uh, strands of practice. 
in uh, a lot of uh, Buddhist, uh, you know, artwork or, or just uh, temples, you see the the image of the the wheel, the wheel of the Dharma that has the eight spokes, which is the traditional symbol for the eightfold path, how it spins on and on, you know, rolling round and round, leading us towards awakening. And um, I know at this point in the retreat, you know, we just think, oh no, not the eightfold path. <laughs> Has she, has she got eight things she has to go through in this list? <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> so I'm sympathetic to that. I don't plan to talk about the whole Eightfold Path in detail, but I just want to kind of talk about some of the general themes. You know, what are the basic ingredients that are in there? You know, what are really the nuggets that we need to have some sense of in order to be able to walk along this path? So there's really just these three basic ingredients to the Eightfold Path. There's the one ingredient of understanding, wisdom, intention. There's the other ingredient of restraint, our whole sila practice, you know, that we've really been paying attention to in a very careful and, uh, you know, deliberate way here. And then there's the ingredient of our meditation, of uh, seeing deeply, connecting with the, the bare experience, the direct experience, the true reality of our experience. This is all what it really comes down to. And um, I remember a few years ago going through a little bit of a change in how I saw my practice. Um, you know, for the most part, I don't really um, talk to people in the outside world in my ordinary life about what it is that I do here, <laughs> or even the fact that I do this here. <laughs> um, you know, or if somebody asks about it, I say, oh, yeah, you know, I meditate a little bit. You know, that's usually about as much as people want to hear about. You'll discover that when you go back home. <laughs> that's usually plenty. <laughs> But um, there was a point in which I was um, kind of developing a new friendship with a, a woman that I'd met and that I was kind of getting to know. And we were talking about our spiritual life and our spiritual practice and our ideas and how we'd been raised, kind of all that stuff that you just kind of go through with people when you're getting to know each other. And so she asked me a little bit about, you know, well, what does it mean for you to be Buddhist? Does that mean that you meditate? You know, and I said, well, yeah, I meditate. <laughs> my, kind of my stock answer. But then I thought for a moment and I said, well, really you know, it's more than that. Really, I follow this thing called the Eightfold Path because, you know, over the years, it's just become more and more clear to me that the meditation, yeah, it's an important piece of it, but it's just only one of those three uh, critical ingredients. So understanding, this ingredient of understanding, refers to, you know, this this right view that I spoke about uh, at the beginning of the retreat, understanding what it is that we're doing here, what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind, what are the fundamental truths about how it all operates and where and how we can find happiness. That ingredient of restraint refers again to our practice of sila, to really paying attention to how we're behaving in the world, to the effect that we're having on others. What one of our teacher calls the conscious commitment to virtue. Conscious commitment to virtue. I like that phrasing of it because it's not just virtue. Uh, you know, unremitting virtue being a somewhat unrealistic goal in this life, as we all know. But it's about the conscious commitment to it, that this is really something that we hold as a, a core value in our lives. And meditation, of course, referring to the training of the mind, what's called bhavana, applying the mind in such a way that we can weaken, weaken those unhealthy, unwholesome, unhelpful habits of mind that we all have developed, the ones that lead us towards suffering, and strengthening those qualities of mind that will help us to live more happily, more peacefully, more harmoniously in the world. 
So those are the three ingredients, really, these three balls that we juggle, or flaming torches, maybe, sometimes it feels like. <laughs> Understanding and restraint and meditation. And we do that here in certain ways, in certain particular ways, but we also do it just as much you know, out there, back in our ordinary lives, in other ways, in ways that are appropriate for that situation. So you may have thought that you were here for a meditation retreat. <laughs> that may be how you've seen it. But really, you know, it's just as much of an understanding retreat. It's just as much of a wisdom retreat. You know, for a silent retreat, we really do quite a lot of talking at you and with you, you know, about the Dharma. That's part of what's going on here. You know, we put a lot of information out to you. You know, we try to, to frame conceptually what it is that we're going that, that we're doing here, how it all operates. And all of that is to support the development of your understanding. So that's also going on here, that piece. The development of a conceptual framework that's actually in alignment with the truth, with the truth of how things are, is incredibly helpful, very useful. So that we can proceed in our lives and in our practice in a way that will get us where we want to go. And you know, to all of these teachings that we've been putting out there, you've been adding your own understanding you know, your direct knowledge that you've gained through looking into your own experience, doing your research. And that strand of the path doesn't just end when we leave here. It doesn't have to. You know, we can continue right on with the development of understanding in our everyday lives. You know, some of us are very much inclined that way. We might have an interest in formal study, you know, reading, attending classes, listening to talks online. Um, There's all sorts of uh, resources available to help us with that. But even if we don't study at all, which I didn't really for many, many years until uh, I kind of started to get into sharing the Dharma with other people, I I didn't really do much studying. I didn't read Dharma books uh, or go to a lot of study classes. But our understanding will still continue to evolve, maybe just by reflecting on what's going on here, on on what's gone on here for you, processing that on the intellectual level. Uh, which you have permission to do <laughs> once we break silence tomorrow. You know, please reflect on what's gone on here for you. You know, do process it. Do think about it. Do incorporate it into your worldview and your understanding of your life and yourself. So understanding grows. You know, maybe just through our awareness practice itself. If we continue to be mindful when we, when we leave here, then just as we've been gathering data here, we'll continue to gather data out in the world. Uh, maybe at a different you know, level of what's going on, maybe a different level of subtlety, maybe on a little grosser level. But if we pay attention, then we will learn more and more. There's no way not to. You know, hopefully you've seen that for yourselves while you've been here. But if we just notice what's going on, then things reveal themselves. It's just the truth. So we practice cultivating understanding here, and we practice it out there in the world too, where we can. Then again, this has also been a sila retreat. And if you think about this, you'll realize you know, that we've been practicing this, this uh, training and restraining our behavior, being very careful about how we behave, our actions, our speech, uh, while we've been here in this very specific, structured way, you know, not even whispering, <laughs> not talking, not looking at each other, you know, not interacting in, you know, for the most part in those ways that are so habitual for us. And we might wonder how this is really applicable to ordinary life. And yet, because our interactions are so constrained, are so simplified, uh, the restraint aspect of the practice of sila here can really 
come to the forefront. And I know for some of you it has. It's really jumped out uh, just how much subtlety, how much richness there is to this practice. We really get to see what's going on for us, you know, inside, around other people, and all of the, the baggage, all of the stuff that we have around just being and sharing the same space with other people and being together. If you've been lucky enough to have uh, what we call a Vipassana romance <laughs> or a Vipassana vendetta during the time that you've been here, then you've really gotten to see this probably pretty vividly, you know, how the passions flare, how the emotions come just based on uh, the color of someone's socks, you know, the way that they walk through a doorway, you know, doesn't take much to, to trigger it. Even if things have been very harmonious with our fellow yogis during the time that we've been here, we probably can't help but have noticed just how much we notice each other, right? <laughs> and all of those thoughts and feelings that come up around each other, just, you know, sharing a space, doing walking meditation, you know, just the person next to us on the next cushion. So despite being in silence, we really get to learn a lot about how we are with other people, where our uh, trigger points are, what our buttons are that set us off, where the, the, the edges of our comfort zone is, both on the wholesome side and on the unwholesome side, on both ends of the spectrum. And that strand of the practice, too, you know, doesn't have to end when we leave here. We can continue right on with that. So maybe some of us decide to take up the five precepts as an ongoing practice outside in the world, which is a wonderful, uh, beautiful practice to have as just as a lifestyle, you know, not in the form that we do it here, but in a form that's appropriate for our conditions and our circumstances out in the world. Maybe we choose just one of those precepts to focus on for a while that we feel is a particular sticking point for us. There was a period in my practice when I decided to explore the uh, precept on skillful speech, you know, which is a big one for all of us, to um, explore it and really delve into it in some detail. And the Buddha broke this one down a little bit more in a way that I find really helpful just to reflect on as I go through life. So unskillful speech includes you know, what immediately comes to mind in terms of dishonesty, lying, uh, saying what's not true. But it also includes um, what's called divisive speech, kind of backstabbing, you know, malicious speech that uh, turns people against each other, that divides uh, friendships, that divides relationships. Uh, harsh speech, which may be perfectly true, <laughs> but delivered in such a way that it's very hurtful, it can be very hurtful. Speech that is not uh, imbued with loving kindness necessarily, but coming from a place more of cruelty, aversion. And then also um, what he called idle speech, kind of gossip or just meaningless chit-chat. All that speech that we use is just kind of filler in our lives, filling up the space, which, you know, maybe in, of it, in and of itself, not so harmful. You know, it could be uh, fairly benign content. But it takes us away, it takes us away from ourselves, it takes us away from a deeper connection. It can be a big distraction. Um, I think about this, this last category of idle speech. A lot of us have this discussion going on with our electronic devices these days. You know, it's a, a, a kind of a discussion that really takes us away, kind of, kind of interacting with content and information that's just a big distraction a lot of the time. So I decided to spend a month really committing to each of these um, four aspects of uh, skillful speech. I felt like all four of them at once, uh, too much, <laughs> not really possible. 
But one at a time, I thought, okay, you know, I'll give it a, a try. And that can be a really interesting investigation. And it was incredibly instructive. Um, for the first one, that, the one just on basic truthfulness, um, my resolution was just not to say anything that I wasn't absolutely sure was true. You know, sounds pretty simple. <laughs> um, you know, and I wasn't at that time, and, you know, I think it's still not now, a big, you know, like a big liar, a compulsive liar, or anything like that. You know, it wasn't like I went through the world just completely misrepresenting the truth as I knew it. Um, but I did discover that, um, you know, not a total surprise, but I did really uncover uh, this tendency that I have uh, to want to be the person in the room with the answers, to want to be the person that knows, and to maybe um, uh, put things out as a little bit more authoritative than I actually know them to be, to embellish a little bit, you know, so that I can have that answer. So out of this, this exercise, um, you know, it really made a shift in how I communicate about certainty with people. I just started to say, you know, I don't really know a lot more, which was a change for me, you know, to just to be willing to say, you know, I don't know. And once I kind of recognized that and started to, to, to make that shift, then it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's not like it's hard to, that hard to say, I don't know. But it was just an area where I hadn't really given attention before, hadn't really paid attention. And there was a, a real um, a, a sense of satisfaction and having a greater integrity just in the way that I uh, communicated with people. So there may be times when you know, we decide to continue on with our practice of sila, really paying careful attention to how we are in the world in some very um, deliberate, very kind of energetic way like, the, uh, like this, as a very uh, kind of pointed investigation. But at other times, our practice of sila may just be very simple. Just simply recognizing when we're caught in a storm of passions and we can't see our way out of it. Just simply connecting with our aspiration to find another way, you know, if, if possible. Even if we have no idea at the moment what that might be. Sometimes it's just simply acknowledging with wholesome remorse when we've messed up. Just being willing to admit, you know, I messed up, <laughs> I made a mistake. To make what amends that we can, to, not to beat ourselves up, but to cultivate really a wholesome resolve that we can do better next time, that we try to do better next time. And at times, that's enough, you know? That's a, that in, just in and, of self, in and of itself, of honestly recognizing when we've made a mistake, is a beautiful practice, a really helpful practice, both for ourselves and for others. So we practice cultivating restraint here, and we can also practice it out there in the world, in whatever way makes sense for us, wherever we are in our path. And then there's the strand of our meditation practice, so obviously, you know, here we cultivate this in a very powerful way with all of the sitting and all of the walking and the continuity of careful mindfulness throughout the day from the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night and everything we do. And that will take a different form, you know, outside of retreat. It's not going to be the same. It won't be the same. But really we can continue right on with that strand of developing our meditation when we leave too. You know, there's no need to to check our meditation practice at the door when we leave here tomorrow. And that's something that we each have to kind of figure out for ourselves. You know, maybe we can devote a certain amount of time every day to the formal practice. Um, maybe we're at a place in our lives where we can devote a lot of time. You know, maybe we, are, we don't have so many responsibilities. We have the, the leisure, the luxury uh, to put the time that we 
feel moved into our practice. Uh, but even for the busiest of us, you know, and I really speak <laughs> from personal experience here, um, we can carve out times to devote to some form of meditation, some form of mindfulness, time to cultivate awareness or concentration or metta in a more focused and a more deliberate way. I heard this really interesting bit on the, the radio the other day. It was a man talking about um, finding ways to get people more involved in communal projects, finding ways to get people to buy in to important community projects. And he was talking about how uh, when people say that we have no free time, you know, which is so many of us are in that position of really feeling like, oh, I've just really got no free time. It doesn't actually mean we don't have any free time. It means that all of our free time is allocated to other things because we all do have a give in our, our lives. So it's more a question of what are our priorities. You know, not do we have the time for it, but how important is it to us? So maybe you know, we take just a few minutes lying in bed at night as we're falling asleep you know, to, to revive that practice that we do here, that we've had a chance to cultivate while we've been here. Just feeling the breath, just feeling the body kind of as we drift off to sleep. Um, with my daughter now, I have a, we, we like to play the now game when I tuck her into bed at night and I'm kind of sitting there with her for a little while and we'll just kind of go back and forth and uh, name the things that we know to be true right now. You know, I hear the crickets outside. Uh, I feel your hand on my head. Uh, I love you, you know, whatever it might be. What's true right now? Maybe it's just, you know, walking down the hall, you know, as Kamala's practice was for many years. Um, I also did a, a little bit of a form of hall practice <laughs> in my when I first came to the Dharma when I was still working in the corporate world. And um, there was a point when our company moved uh, a little further out, I think, to cheaper real estate. <laughs> and it wasn't quite as nice of a building. And uh, we had had cubicles in the old building, but they'd been kind of distributed in a very artful way. There weren't too many of them together. They were kind of broken up, so it didn't feel quite so oppressive. Um, but at this new building, it was just like, you know, it was this huge room like this with just row after row after row of cubicles, uh, really soul-killing. Um, <laughs> but so where my cubicle was, you know, it just worked out that there's this long, you know, aisle of cubicles, the, the little cubicle hallway that I had to walk down, you know, dozens of times a day to get to the printer or my boss's office or the elevator or the bathrooms or whatever it was. And, you know, there wasn't anything else in particular I was going to be doing during that walk. You know, it wasn't like I was walking and typing on my computer. You know, I was just doing that walk. So very much like Kamala describes with her, you know, her home practice, I had this office practice of, you know, this one corridor to my cubicle became my, my walking path. Yeah, and it wasn't that I, you know, slowed down and was feeling, you know, every single... <laughs> I would not recommend this, you know, in the workplace. <laughs> but just to kind of feel the body moving. Just to kind of feel the breath going in and out. Just to kind of take a read on what my mental state was, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Just to have, you know, those few seconds to just check in as I went back and forth and back and forth over the course of the day uh, really adds up, you know. So if, if, the, if it's a priority, we can all find places like that to carve out a time for practice, carve out our time for mindfulness. So the way to take this practice home with us is just not to leave it here. (laughs) Don't leave it here with you when you go. Pack it up. Take it along. There are all sorts of ways to juggle these three elements of our practice. The growth of understanding, the commitment to restraint, the deepening of awareness. 
There are all sorts of ways to engage with those ingredients that we need to feel really satisfied. Like this path that we're walking is a rich path, that it's leading us where we want to go. But we need to keep looking at the big picture. So if I think just about my meditation practice, you know, since I've become a parent, you know, it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> it's an absolute mess. You know, there's just not the time, the energy to, you know, sit down for an hour in the morning and really, you know, get into my meditation. If I think just about my sila practice, my practice of restraint, on the other hand, uh, it's totally blossomed since becoming a parent. You know, there's so much rich material there. It's just, it's, it's really deepened in a way that it, that it didn't before having children and having all the challenges that came with that. If I think about my practice of deepening understanding, meh, you know, <laughs> it's kind of fair to middling, you know, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm picking up little things here and there, but there's still a long way to go. But if I step back from, from those details and I look at the bigger picture, you know, those interplay of, of, of those different elements in my life and my practice over time, then I can see that I'm on the path. You know, I'm on my path, my particular you know, embodiment of this eightfold path, which has its own particular features, its own particular challenges, its own particular war- rewards. And it's so rich and so satisfying to be on that path to be heading towards my destination. So if we think, you know, there's no way that I can do this out there, that really depends on what we think this is, you know. Uh, If we think uh, that it involves, you know, a huge amount of formal meditation, you know, the walking and the sitting, if we think that it involves going really, really slowly so that we can catch all the nuances of our experience, if we think that it involves not interacting with our fellow human beings very much, avoiding eye contact and not speaking, then yeah, you know, we probably can't do that out there. Um, Or even if we could, we would not particularly recommend it. But continuing to live mindfully, you know, continuing to be aware of our motivations and our emotions, uh, continuing to find ways to check in with our bodies, to check in with our thoughts, on a level that's consistent, that's doable with our everyday activities, so that we will continue to grow in compassion and understanding that we can do. You know, that all of us can do, just like taking the next breath, just like making the next step. If we just keep remembering and reminding ourselves to do it, you know, if it is a priority for us. And our wish for you is that your time here uh, will help you with that, that it will help you to remember, that it will help you to reconnect uh, when you lose your way and you lose touch with what it's about. The Buddha once told how in an earlier lifetime he had been a rich Brahmin called the Lama. And he had distributed an enormous amount of alms, given a huge amount of charity to the needy over his lifetime, and how it had brought him great merit on his path over the course of many lifetimes. But he said, better yet would be taking refuge, true refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha. And this would be perfected if one observed the five precepts. It would be still better if one could imbibe a slight fragrance, if only for a moment, of an all-encompassing radiation of loving-kindness. The best of all, however, the ultimate, would be to cultivate, even for the time of a finger snap, the thought of impermanence. Let's sit for a moment.
This is a quote from Deepama. You have seen me. I was disheartened and broken down due to the loss of my children and husband and due to disease. I suffered so much, I could not walk properly. But now, how are you finding me? All my disease is gone. I am refreshed and there is nothing on my mind. There is no sorrow, no grief. I am quite happy. If you come to meditate, you will also be happy. There is no magic to Vipassana. Only follow the instructions. some time for walking now and then some more chanting and meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.